You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. Uh, tonight, I am delighted and excited to be joined by Dr. Barbara Ramsby, a writer, historian, professor, and activist. She is an elected fellow of the Society of American Historians and holds the John D. MacArthur Chair at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's the former president of the National Women's Studies Association. Uh, she's an author. She wrote The Movement for Black Lives. And on a more personal level, uh, she's a mentor to me, um, provides me with guidance and much needed assistance as I lead NWS say and go forward. Dr. Ransby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kay. So I want to begin um, in this first half hour where we talk through some of these issues because you've been actively involved in helping to, to change the direction in terms of activism and agency. Can you talk a bit about your work to help people understand that Black Lives Matter is more than just a moment it's a movement, it's an organizing strategy. Can you talk about that? Yes, well, that's a big topic. Um, so, I mean, I'll say this, uh, when we use the term Black Lives Matter, you know, um, a lot of times people, you know, it's, it's, it's unclear the scope and scale of what we're talking about. So Black Lives Matter started as a hashtag, Opal Tometi, Patrice Khan Colors, Alicia Garza were kind of the initiators um, of, of, of the term, but it has evolved over the years since the murder of um, Trayvon Martin, the acquittal of his killer, the uh, uprising in Ferguson, Missouri in August of 2014. And it, I mean, it has evolved into a movement and a movement is not just a spontaneous uprising against injustice. Uh, a movement is something that has to be sustained by organizers and organizations and strategies and so forth. So the current iteration of Black Lives Matter uh, in, in organizational form that we see is the Movement for Black Lives, which includes chapters of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, but also includes organizations like the Black uh, Youth Project 100 and Dream Defenders in Florida and many other organizations. So, and they meet and they debate and they make decisions and plans and so forth. So, I mean, that's, it, it's, it's really important in terms of doing this work and wanting to make a difference in the world that we kind of map what kind of work is required. No one can say, I wanna build a house, but if you come to build a house with, you know, popcorn and potato chips and not, you know, nails and hammers and, you know, whatever else you need, um, you're not gonna be so successful. So. Um, the process of movement building requires certain kinds of ingredients, uh, human and otherwise, and, and that is strategy, analysis, uh, seasoned organizers, plans of action, and so forth. And all of those are in place in terms of this current movement. And we can talk about, you know, a little bit more about the content of it. Which is something I want to get into. I want to ask you, though, because we, we heard a lot when people were out doing Black Lives Matter marches. I'm specifically talking about last year. And we saw that the support for Black Lives Matter, uh, when it was around, around the time we were all marching and thinking about what happened to George Floyd, it was around 70%. 
By the time the fall hit, the support for the Black Lives Matter movement had dropped to 40% because it had dropped drastically within the white community. It was a sense, well, it's been a long summer, <laughs> I've done all the marching, and now justice has arrived. How do you get people to sustain their interest and involvement in the movement when they are not African-American so it doesn't directly always affect them or impact their lives? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's not just African American. I mean, it's not just non African Americans that we have to be concerned about in sustaining interest. It's African Americans as well. I mean, there is a kind of fatigue that sets in, you know, after video after video, murder after murder, um, you know, uh, the, the failure to, to charge many of the people guilty. So, so all of us, even those of us who are more directly impacted, uh, become weary and um, you know disheartened and so forth. I think this is a challenge for uh, movement building and for organizers over time in many many different contexts. And we we have to um, I guess accept that the movement is not going to sustain a high level of activity mm. constantly. Right? The movement levels of activity ebbs and flows, and uh, you know that that is organic. That is uh, predictable that is, uh, you know, not unusual. There's a question of, is there sustained kind of interstitial organizing that's going on between the high points of public uh, activity in the streets? And for this movement, there has been, you know, the down periods where there are fewer people in the streets, either um, a new outrageous incident has not galvanized people or, or people are distracted by COVID or whatever, there has been steady organizing behind the scenes that has gone on um, you know, during those lull times. So because there are not newspaper headlines does not mean that there's not organizing and there's not movement building uh, going on. Now, if we all go home and you know, kind of chill and, and uh, you know, resign ourselves to not doing anything in those down periods, that's a problem. That's not really been the narrative, that's not really been the case. Um, so there are, you know, periods of, of enormous visible mass um, protest. And then there's down periods where people are reading and thinking and debating and strategizing and doing all those less glamorous, less um, uh, visible aspects of resistance. But those are equally as important. Um, to your point about people directly impacted versus people indirectly impacted. Listen, you know, this summer we have seen millions, millions of people, now let's be clear, mostly white people who were in the street protesting against racial, racial injustice and racial violence. That is unprecedented in this country. I was listening to Rashad Robinson uh, the other day from uh, Color of Change and he said, uh, anti-racism has become a majoritarian issue. <laughs> I think that's, a, you know, I mean, listen, that's a, that's a game changer if it's true. It doesn't mean that everybody is completely committed. It doesn't mean everybody is completely even informed, but the political impulse of, of large numbers of people because of the work of black organizers, I might add, um, has shifted. And we need to mark that, you know, I'm a historian and sometimes people say history repeats, which it does not. Um, every historical moment is unique. And if something happens in this historical moment, the fact that it's something similar has happened before means that this moment is 
by definition different, right? Because we have that memory of what happened before. So, um, so I think we are in a moment of danger, mm. uh, a moment of precarity, but also a moment of radical possibility. Uh, so I think we want to hold both of those things um, as we move forward. A couple of weeks ago, we had that event that happened at the Capitol, that, that failed insurrection. With the work that you do and the lens that you use to, to look at American history, can you talk about that moment? What does that mean for the movement going forward? What happened then? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was pretty disturbing and, and not entirely unpredictable, right? Uh, I think as more details uh, are revealed, we see not only was this a riotous mob urged on, incited, encouraged, um, and enabled uh, by the former uh, president and his accomplices, but it was also a sort of collaboration with certain people with enormous amounts of power that they were given inside information. There were uh, uh, police officials and government officials that, uh, you know, knew about and could have predicted and possibly prevented this event from happening. Um, and, you know, it was, it was deadly. It was a bloody attempted coup. And people say, well, you know, these people were buffoons and they had on costumes and they were ridiculous. Well, there is often a carnivalesque uh, air to, to, to these kinds of events. Um, you know, we also remember other moments of fascist uh, 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 pushes in other parts of the world. So, you know, in Nazi Germany, um, there were fights in the streets with Nazis before Hitler came to power. Mussolini's black shirts were street thugs. You know, they were um, viewed as, as not serious. They were, they were um, you know, just uh, characters, right? Uh, but, but eventually, those street thugs, those, um, you know, uh, not seemingly not serious, seemingly not powerful forces became a force coupled with people with enormous power and ambition and um, really heinous objectives. All of that fused together to uh, culminate in, in fascist regimes around the world and dictatorships. Uh, around the world. Now, this moment and this place are unique, but all of these things happen on a continuum. Fascism happens on a continuum. From Mussolini to Hitler to, uh, to Franco, they were all different scenarios. So uh, the fact that we see uh, what, you know, some call an inchoate fascist movement, a proto-fascist movement in this country, yes, it is American style. It is unique to this moment. But, but it is in the family, it is on the continuum of fascist ideologies and fascist movements. And we should take it very, very seriously. And the organizers, the serious organizers that I know uh, in fact do. So everyone's now calling for, for healing. Um, 
for restoration, for moving forward. And, mm. and I'm still, I find myself, Barbara, still at the accountability, accountability, responsibility, reparation stage of how yeah. do we get to healing mm. if we're not holding people accountable, not just for what happened a couple of weeks ago, but just the rise of white supremacy as a whole in this country. Yeah. So, so, so how do we get beyond this moment? <laughs> well, you know, um, you know, in South Africa is a place and, and, and the Free South Africa movement was a movement very close to my heart. I was very involved and people very beloved to me made many sacrifices uh, in that struggle. Uh, and, and the culmination of that was kind of this truth and reconciliation process commission. Uh, but many people were critical of it, right? That it was um, inadequate, it was flawed, it did not give a real sense of accountability and justice. Um, and what we've seen since, you know, many, many uh, poor and working class Black South Africans continue to be disenfranchised. I mean, there is a new Black elite, there is a new Black middle class, but the overwhelming majority of Black people uh, find themselves in very, very dire circumstances. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to heal when you are still being wounded. So there, there, there's not a, a closed chapter that we can move on from, you know, white supremacy and the damage that it does uh, in our lives, the um, um, dispossession, the exploitation, the pain, the torture that it represents in the lives of black people uh, in this country and around the world. I mean, it's not over. So to say, you know, you have someone uh, uh, putting a bandage on your right arm while they're stabbing you in the left arm, I mean, you, healing seems um, not a timely response to that reality. So uh, yes, healing at some point, but not healing as a kind of um, uh, sugarcoating of a reality that still needs to be reconciled. I mean, there needs to be justice. You know, uh, one of the most powerful slogans in our movement has been no justice, mm -hmm. no peace. So don't ask me to be calm and move on uh, when, I, when I have not seen justice. Uh, and that is certainly the place that we're in. And I say that calmly, lovingly, <laughs> with enormous hope and peace in my heart, but that is the reality. And it would be, a, a, you know, an act of violence to deny that reality. So a lot of the, the people who are joining us tonight, uh, Dr. Ransby, are students at Loyola University, mm -hmm. faculty and staff members. And so if you can just speak, you know, what would that type of justice, equity or movement look like on, the, on a persistently white institution's campus? Like, what does that look like? What, what are steps that people can take, even from the different points that they enter into the mm -hmm. discussion? Mm -hmm. Well, I think first is, you know, we all as individuals have to make choices. What is important to us? What do we believe? Or what do we, you know, I mean, sometimes we want the world to see us a certain way, but we really don't want the work to do the work to earn that. So if one is really going to embrace an anti-racist agenda, uh, a liberatory agenda, a freedom agenda, we have to really interrogate the institutions that uh, we are a part of. And I always see myself, you know, as Ella Baker argued, you know, as an outsider within because I work in institutions not of my making. Uh, 
And uh, universities, colleges, universities, the academy, you know, has been complicit in white supremacy in all kinds of hierarchies. And Kay, I have to introduce the term racial capitalism into this because it's not a term that sometimes gets used. Uh, but I do think there's a class component to this that we have to really be upfront about. Poor and working class, black and brown young people are often excluded from institutions of higher learning. They have been for the last couple of decades channeled and corralled uh, into um, uh, carceral institutions as an alternative to that. And, um, you know, and our institutions, I mean, the very foundations of them are, um, are culpable, are complicit, are, um, are guilty. You know, just the notion of a meritocracy is problematic, right? Is steeped in white supremacy and inequality. The notion of a meritocracy ignores the notion that people in power, people with existing privilege, determine what those points of merit are. I mean, in my value system, somebody who gets up at five o'clock in the morning and takes a bus to my campus to make meals in the cafeteria or scrub floors to make sure dorms and classrooms are clean. I mean, that's a certain work ethic. That is a certain um, uh, commitment to getting the job done. That is objectively a lot harder than my job which is reading books and talking to people about the ideas that I encounter in those books and writing books. I mean, but this society has determined that I'm gonna be compensated at a much higher rate. I am going to be uh, uh, treated with greater privilege and respect than people doing that other kind of work. I mean, those kinds of embedded hierarchies are fundamentally unfair and unjust. Even within the learning and teaching community, the tenure track faculty versus the adjunct faculty and the non-faculty uh, workers at the university versus the faculty at the university versus the administrators at the university. So we talk about many um, highfalutin ideals of democracy, but universities and colleges are at the core pretty undemocratic institutions. Um, and so coming to terms with that is really an important first step. Um, then deciding what are our values independent of what we've been socialized and trained uh, and rewarded to affirm. Um, and, then, and then working toward those to the degree that we can, understanding that it may be at odds with, uh, with, with the powers that be. And so my last question for you, Dr. Ransby, before we bring everybody back and then we'll move into our breakout rooms to have this discussion. Um, so we're now one day into a new administration. Um, and, and there are a lot of people, myself included, who was singing songs like Brand New Day yesterday, you know, as you, as we saw Sister Kamala Harrison listen to little sister Amanda Gorman just speak the words to our soul. But, but we woke up this morning realizing, recognizing that our essential condition has not changed. Having a new administration has not brought bread into people's homes who have been struggling. It has not changed our school system. Joe Biden, President Biden said, I will be the president for all. 
And I was troubled by that, Dr. Ransby. I'm like, how can you be the president of white supremacists and assume that we're going to be able to come together in one America? So can you talk about how we go forward in this moment after what we've come through the last four years of being held hostage, but that our situation fundamentally, the work is still before us? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, he is the president of everybody. I mean, that's literally true, but it's a question of what principles um, uh, are going to guide your governance and guide your decisions uh, while you're in power. Now, he was not my first choice uh, for president. He was not my second choice. Uh, I don't even think he was my third choice. Uh, there are a lot of things to say uh, in criticism of Joe Biden. I am not impressed that uh, you know he has made certain kind of cosmetic changes in his cabinet. I am you know, I mean, symbolically a, a black and South Asian woman as vice president is important, but I actually want a lot more than symbolism. Uh, I want a progressive agenda. I want some concrete changes. Now, some of the initial executive orders that he has signed have been a breath of fresh air from what we were enduring before. I mean, it is process of undoing mm -hmm. so much damage and so much harm um, that, you know, I mean, in a sense, he can do 101 things and we will not even be at, at, at sort of ground zero. But, uh, but I, you know, I think the $1.9 trillion to uh, address the COVID crisis and the economic crisis, the moratorium on uh, evictions and foreclosures, uh, the intervention in terms of DACA, the ending of the Muslim ban, the rejoining of the Paris Accord. All those things are good and important, um, but we need more. I mean, we need Medicare for all. We need uh, reparations, which I've not heard very much about. Um, we need uh, massive infusions of resources into our communities. We need a serious, a serious check on racist police violence. We need a cancellation of the student debt, which is disproportionately impacting black students. That's another issue that those of us in the academy uh, have to deal with. So we need a lot. We do not need a middle of the road position. We need a firm, progressive, bold, visionary uh, intervention at this point. Now, the reality is, you know, if you're serious about organizing, 70, what is it, 70 million people voted for Trump? 74. 74 million people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and you cannot write those people off and you cannot put them all in jail. So a part of this struggle is a hearts and minds struggle to win some of those people, to uh, neutralize some of those people, uh, and then to move forward for, 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 for the rest who, 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 who can't be convinced. So. Um, some people will benefit, some people who have actively and ignorantly supported Donald Trump will actually benefit from progressive legislation, even, you know, in, in spite of themselves, in spite of where they stood politically, in spite of them not advocating for this. So if we have um, eviction and foreclosure moratorium, if we have a forgiveness of the student debt, if we have, um, you know, $2,000 a, a person, not just as a one-time intervention, which almost means nothing, but 
$2,000 checks until this crisis is over. I mean, what is more important than people's survival? So if we had that, everybody benefits from that, even people who don't understand it, even people who don't advocate for it. So there is a sense of common sense, humane, just policies will benefit people who um, you know, opposed it and, and will benefit them in spite of themselves in a sense. You know? So, I mean, that's, that's one intervention that I think will maybe lessen the polarization. But um, I don't know. I mean, some things that have been proposed, uh, national conversations reaching across it. I don't think there's um, a unity with fascists. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, there, there isn't. Now, 70 million people that voted for Trump are not all fascists. They, they, didn't, they didn't all go to Washington um, on January 6th. They didn't all storm the Capitol. So people are complicated, even people with you know, <laughs> very bad ideas, right? Human beings are complicated, which is a blessing and a curse. Um, but some of those people, some people voted for Trump holding their noses, but thinking whatever, you know, they thought he, he was gonna change things that one or two things that they liked about what he said. Um, some people voted out of complete ignorance. And when I've seen some people interviewed, just, just an assault of facts might've sobered them up um, that, that, that wasn't there. And then some people are staunchly committed as we saw with the, the, the Camp Auschwitz t-shirts and the Confederate flags and the utterances of some of the leaders uh, of, of different right-wing um, neo-fascist groups they are committed to a certain ideology that really undermines our ability to survive. Right. Uh, and so there's, there's not really a way to negotiate with that, um, that, that, that those people cannot be allowed to act on those beliefs because to allow that is to allow the destruction of other people. Uh, and so, you know, it's not a question of censorship or free speech or, or anything like that. It's, it's a question of, do you have the right to actively organize, to undermine and, and, and eliminate the ability of certain sectors of the population to survive? And the answer to that is no. Dr. Barbara Ransby, thank you so much. Uh, she's the author of Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. Thank you for setting the tone for us. I'm happy to be in conversation with you, always. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember... Words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history, so use yours wisely.